Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 5. So, um, this was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Don't panic, I don't mean that in terms of quality. In that regard, it was quite good. But watching this was one of the most viscerally upsetting experiences. Watching Dr. Brenner play daddy to Eleven made me want to die, and at the risk of oversharing, it was genuinely triggering for me. I understand better than most people, I'd say, what Elle is experiencing here. Being forced to let your abuser back into your life is one of the absolute worst things in the world. Believe me when I tell you that it makes you very acutely want to die. But before we get there, we find unknown hero Agent Man dying in the back of the pizza van. How humiliating for him, and after such a badass moment, too. The boys try to stop the bleeding, but it's no use. His wound is a fatal one, and he only has time to give them the name Nina and hand them a pen. And then he's dead, and they don't know how to find this mysterious Nina, and there's someone on their tail. Back at Joyce's house, the military is dismantling her life and combing through her family's effects. To my dismay, the less heroic unknown agent man is still alive by the time our unidentified military antagonist shows up, and he offers to help save the man's life, if the guy gives L up. We've no idea yet if he does wind up snitching, but I fear that he will. But that is now, and this is... earlier. It's Elle and Owens in a car on their way to a hidden spot in the desert, the location of a Project Nina that will supposedly somehow help Elle regain her powers. And they reach the place about 12 hours before the death of Agent Man, which does not give Nina much time to work. Not that I necessarily want the Nina plotline to work out, given who is involved. For a moment, it seems like a bright spot for Elle. The people at Project Nina all seem more or less welcoming and rather in awe of her. But even before the reveal, Owens has an ominous line about the place being retrofitted to, quote, hold something much more powerful than a missile. That something being L. And hold is an incredibly weighty word to use here. Much though I wanted to give Owens the benefit of the doubt, I was wrong to let this choice of diction slide. Because to hold something is to store it at best and imprison it at worst, and Project Nina most decidedly meant it in the sense of imprisonment. The minute Elle entered this bunker, she became Project Nina's prisoner. She walked unknowingly right back into abuse. And lest anyone think that it won't be so bad, Dr. Owens leads Elle to the single worst thing she's ever seen. Dr. Brenner, somehow miraculously alive and well. How is this possible? I have no idea. Unless Kali is about to pop out from another room or something and reveal that this is a con, it appears as if Brenner somehow survived his altercation with the Demogorgon. I don't fully remember the details of that supposed death scene we got way back in season one, but I was pretty sure he was dead until the prologue of this season, so I'm kind of willing to call this a retcon. And between you and me, I'm gonna need a damn good explanation for it very quickly, or else I'm going to be calling shenanigans. Because, to be honest, this really kind of feels like just torturing Elle for the sake of it. She doesn't need to get over her Brenner-related trauma by literally confronting the man. 
That's not how things work. The only thing that will come of her reuniting with her abuser is more trauma. Her psychological wounds have been scarring over for years, and Brenner being back is like taking a metaphorical razor blade to them. It's opening up things that have long since begun to heal. It's throwing her back to square one, and it's taking the risk that this time, she not only won't break free and recover, she might not even survive. Again, I don't think there is literally anything in the world worse than finding yourself once again trapped in the clutches of an abuser you thought you'd escaped. It feels like death, and it can very easily lead to it. And Brenner is infinitely hateable. The way he looks at Elle, the way he speaks to her, I could barely look at the screen when he was on it. I actually thought I was going to cry. This man could not be more clearly a predator. He's gaslighting her. He's touching her against her will. He's appealing in the most sickening fashion to an imaginary familial connection that I had better not find out is more than imaginary. Watching this made me physically sick, and it's not helped by the way that Elle is treated when she tries to make a run for it. The people who grab her, who restrain her, and who drug her, and who hand-deliver her unconscious body back to her abuser, they are smug. They're smirking. One of them even tells her to play nicely with Dr. Brenner. Even recounting this right now makes me want to claw my skin off. Because this is real. This is authentic. This is incredibly true to life. There is nothing more inescapable than an abusive man with power. A man who can smile and act reasonable and pretend to be charming, all while painting you as crazy and delusional and ridiculous. A man whose privilege alone sways other men and even women to turn against you, to mock you, and to hurt you on his behalf. We have seen a lot of that lately in America, haven't we? And then, when Eleven falls unconscious, Brenner gathers her up in his arms, offers her an incredibly false apology, and welcomes her home. And I want to beat him to fucking death. After the credits, we are on to Russia. Can I tell you how sick I am of goddamn Russia? But no, we're in Russia, and we're watching Hopper get the shit beaten out of him, and he still doesn't have any fucking shoes, and oh, hey, there's Enzo. What his real name is, I don't know. If they've said it, I haven't caught it. But it looks like they're in some kind of prison wherein people are being forced to fight for their lives, probably against a Demogorgon or something else from the Upside Down. Hopper threatens to kill Enzo, and he backs off because, honestly, this is not his fault. It's Yuri's. And the man in question is currently taunting Joyce and Murray about their predicament. He's got them tied up in his plane, and I can't lie, I am extremely disappointed in Murray for choosing this situation to be the time he lets his paranoia drop. He makes up for it later, sure, but it's nonsense to think that he would drink anything from a fucking Russian. It's wildly out of character, completely breaking my suspension of disbelief. But I suppose I've no choice but to move on. And by the way, Yuri is really goddamn annoying. I really want him to be fucking dead. So at Rick's house, Eddie is being a very choosing beggar. I can't blame the gang for mostly forgetting about him a lot of the time. He's certainly no Yuri, but he too strikes me as incredibly annoying. At the buyer's house, Max is alive and well and hanging out with Holly, who is supposed to be six, but is clearly at the onset of puberty. That's an entire preteen sitting right there, pretending to be a kindergartner. And between the two of them, it's Max who is playing with the crayons. 
Well, no, she's not playing, exactly. It's kind of like art therapy, really, except that it's more about trying to solve the mystery than actually processing her trauma. She's drawing what she saw in Vecna's lair, and Nancy is the one who puts the clues together. Just like with Will's drawings in season two, Max's drawings this season slot together to form a larger image. And while Will's was a map of the town in a sense, Max's is the facade of Victor Creel's house. Max compares the place Vecna nearly killed her to a dream world or a nightmare. Dustin proposes that Max actually entered not the Upside Down, but Vecna's mind itself. Both are promising suggestions, and I look forward to finding out which, if either, or perhaps both, is true. But before anything else interesting can happen in Hawkins, we have to take a detour into the worst trauma the show has to offer. It hurt terribly to watch this, and it's no easier to recount it. Elle wakes to find that her hair has been shaved. She was, while unconscious, stripped naked. Her clothes were taken from her along with her shoes. Someone, and I dread to think who, has dressed her instead in a nondescript hospital gown, and she is forced to walk barefoot on the cold tile floor. She has been dehumanized. This is an attack on her personhood, on her identity, on her humanity itself. And her tears are gut-wrenching. Her panic is palpable. I am floored she even found the strength to get out of that bed. I don't know if I would have. This is without a doubt her worst nightmare come to life. And she's not even being allowed to truly live it. Because right now, she's actually dreaming. She really has been stripped. She really has been shaved. But she's also been stuffed into a sensory deprivation chamber so that they can psychologically torture her to try to get her powers back. To torture her so much, in fact, that she goes into cardiac arrest. So I want to talk only briefly about her dreams. For some very strange reason, Jamie Campbell Bower is here, and his character is extraordinarily creepy. It's not quite the same kind of creepy as Brenner, but it's not inherently dissimilar either. And he speaks to Elle in the room where Brenner will later find her, bloodied and seemingly guilty in the aftermath of the 79 massacre. And then it happens again. And again. Elle is trapped in a loop. Trapped in that room where something happened. Trapped with Jamie calling her a sleepyhead for some reason. He is too pretty to be that goddamn creepy, and his creepiness is such a particular kind of skin-crawlingly eerie that I would never let this character near a bunch of children. So I think I'll go ahead and get into my theories here, shall I? This guy, whoever he is, is obviously important. You don't cast Jamie Campbell Bower in a throwaway role, and if you wanted me to think he wasn't important, you shouldn't have shown me him lurking about in that massacre room. He is involved in that somehow. I would pretty much bet my life. Now, I speculated in the previous episode that Creel's son had something to do with Fekna. Frankly, I think Henry, or whatever his name was, happened to be a baby serial killer, and I think there's a good chance that he is Vecna in some sense. Maybe Vecna possessed him, maybe he became Vecna when he died, I don't know for sure. But I am suspicious as fuck toward that little boy. Just as I am suspicious as fuck toward Jamie here. I would say this thing is 50-50 right now. 50% chance that Vecna is Henry, 50% chance that Vecna is this weirdo orderling. How and why? I don't know. But I think Jamie is the one who's actually responsible for whatever happened in 79, and for that part of the plot to tie into the larger story in a narratively satisfying way, Vecna too has to be somehow involved in those events. Maybe Jamie and Vecna worked together in some capacity? But I would say it's more likely 
that they're one and the same. I'm not going to guarantee it, because there's plenty of room to subvert my expectations, I suppose, but right now, I am all but sure that Vecna is either Henry or the Orderly, and there's a good chance that the Orderly is Henry. If Henry supposedly died in 59 and looked like he was about 10, maybe, and this Orderly looks like he's about 30 in 79, well, that math is certainly mathing, isn't it? How the hell it could be possible, though? That I'm gonna need some clarification on. For right now, though, we're back in the California desert. The gang is burying unknown hero Agent Man in the junkyard where Argyle and Jonathan were smoking earlier, except they're only burying him like a foot down, so his ass is gonna get dragged out of there by a coyote in no time. Argyle is right to be freaking out, honestly, though he's not exactly being helpful, and if I'm being honest, this character has kind of worn out his welcome for me. I don't really find him funny, and he's certainly not helping right now. His van is helpful. He is not. More interesting is Mike and Will's latest heart-to-heart. -heart. Will is blatantly telegraphing his queerness here. The only way he could have more clearly said, I'm in the closet, would have been to literally say the words, I'm in the closet. And this scene scares the shit out of me, because I'm taking it as another little clue that Will might not be long for this world. We still haven't seen this painting of his. Hollywood adores killing off queers, and I don't know if the Duffer brothers are going to be able to resist the gut punch of Will dying while harboring such an obviously unrequited love for Mike. Please, just let this poor baby come out of the closet and be happy. Please, do not bury another goddamn gay. As for Mike, he's not picking up on what Will is leaving unspoken, but he does manage to figure out what the hell Agent Man meant by giving him that broken pen. Turns out there's a note inside it. A phone number, in fact. Now, let's preface what I'm about to say by telling you that I am a 90s baby. I grew up with dial-up. My first years on the internet were in the era of you can't be online and use the phone at the same time unless you have two phone lines. So I'm not inherently unfamiliar with what's happening here, but I don't really know much about the tech of it. I don't know if calling a computer is something you could really do in 1986. I really just don't know enough about the history of the internet and networks in general to judge this at all. And to be honest, I wasn't even sure what I should look up to try to learn about it. All I've got is that Web 1.0 was not a thing until like 1989, I think, but I have no idea if that's even a relevant fact or not. I'm tech-savvy in the sense of being intuitive and willing to experiment, but I am not tech-savvy in the sense of knowing whether or not you could really just call up a computer on a payphone in 1986. So I'm just going to take the show's word for this. Feel free to let me know if it's wrong. Back in Russia, Hopper gets a whole long speech about Vietnam and Agent Orange and his daughter's death and his divorce, and I wish I could tell you that I cared. It's partly that I just don't like Hopper, partly that Sarah hasn't been mentioned in years, partly that I forgot Hopper even had an ex-wife, and partly that Grand's speeches about Vietnam trauma are extremely overdone at this point. No shade to any actual Vietnam vets out there. I'm not talking about you, because I don't know a goddamn thing about you, and you're not a fictional character in some made-up story. But in terms of tropes and storytelling, I am so fucking sick of hearing about Vietnam. All I want to hear about Vietnam is triumphant tales of hippies draft-dodging. Thank you very much. And as for Hopper's trauma, 
I wish I could be sympathetic, but the whole thing just struck me as incredibly insincere. It's such a male-coded traumatic backstory, so often used to justify male characters being awful and shitty, and this kind of vulnerability never actually sticks around long in a story anyway. This kind of thing is always used as a shallow moment of, oh, he only hurts the people around him because he's hurting so much himself, can't you understand that? And no. Fuck that shit. Fuck it completely. You're supposed to be the hero here. That shit might work for villains, not for you. If Hopper actually learns his lesson and grows beyond being that awful guy he was in season three, then fair enough. Good for him. But I will believe that shit when I see it. And in the meantime, this whole speech really just read as a bunch of woe is me. Just go and get some fucking therapy, dude. But, back in Hawkins, the woman seen with Dr. Owens investigates Eddie's uncle's house. I had completely forgotten, but there is a crack in the ceiling of the trailer, and it has not gone away. The woman, name unknown, takes one look at it and announces that Mr. Munson is moving out. And it's a quiet moment, but a powerful one. Munson broaches no argument. He just accepts it with a sigh and goes to pack his bags. I'm pleasantly surprised that he seems to have turned out to be a pretty okay guy. Elsewhere in town, though, Chrissy's funeral is today. It's held in a church, and the eulogy is religious, and fuck Chrissy's shitty mom for having the nerve to stand up there and act like she wasn't the reason this happened to her child. It's like watching the mother of a kid who completed suicide go on about how the kid should have opened up to them, all while knowing that the kid was suicidal because they were being abused by that very mom. That's not literally what's happening here, but it is kind of the metaphor, isn't it? As for the basketballers, they're a bunch of pea-brained losers who double down on the idea of forcing Eddie to face mob justice. Jason is clearly holding on to sanity by a thread, and here's hoping that means Vecna can get him. And his assertion that he doesn't believe in, quote, supernatural crap is hilarious, considering he's the most white-bred church boy I have ever seen. There is no way this man is not Captain Christianity. He absolutely believes in stupid supernatural shit such as let me check my notes, Jesus fucking Christ and motherfucking Jehovah. Like, what do you think supernatural means? Anyway, one of his friends, whose name I don't know, has started getting Vecna visions, and another snitches on Reefer Rick, pointing the gang directly toward Eddie's hideout. And while I can't pretend that I'm going to be particularly crushed if Eddie dies this season, I really, really don't want him to get killed in some kind of a satanic panic lynch mob. But back to our gang of heroes. They're going full Scooby-Doo, breaking into Creel's abandoned house and splitting up to look for clues. It's adorable and terribly fun and probably a bit misguided, but nobody gets hurt, so I'm still on board. But the romantic tension between Steve and Nancy is worrying me, I've gotta admit. I have moved beyond being wary of the reintroduction of the love triangle, and now I'm frightened that it's setting up something far worse. Nancy and Jonathan have not actually broken up yet. Their actors are an item in real life. I don't know if the show would ever actually allow Nancy and Steve to get back together. But what better way to set up an audience heartbreak than to signal Nancy and Steve's reconciliation, only to have Steve die before the tension is resolved? I, for one, will be crushed and furious if that's what the writers decide to do, and I am truly terrified right now that they will. 
But for now, though, Steve is alive and well and exploring the place with the gang, and like I said, it is hilariously Scooby-Doo. Steve is full himbo, Dustin is snarking up a storm, and Nancy has decided once again that her dad is Carson Drew. Meanwhile, in Alaska, or the skies of Alaska, to be specific, or perhaps the skies of the Pacific Ocean, or perhaps the skies of Russia, I'm not quite sure, Joyce and Murray argue over how the hell they're going to get out of this one. They're tied up, and they don't have any weapons, but Yuri isn't listening to them, and Murray is supposedly a black belt. That's, you know, not actually helpful, because getting a black belt doesn't at all prepare you in any way for a real fight, but Joyce manages to kind of, sort of, accidentally hype Murray up into believing that he can take Yuri on. And apparently confidence is the key here. Murray does end up beating the shit out of him, but Joyce is fucking useless in this scene, and the whole damn thing ultimately ends in a plane crash, so, um, I guess we're not resolving this Russia plotline next episode either, are we? May the gods save me from this plotline very soon. But at Project Nina, Elle flashes back to moments in the lead-up to 79, during which she was bullied by the other subjects, two in particular. And while the creepy orderly defends her, Brenner does not. Instead, he needles her, rubbing in her failure and humiliation. He makes her dwell in the reality that everyone is laughing at her, that she is, ultimately, fundamentally judged and unloved, and that desperation triggers her powers. Just a little bit. And Brenner, I will point out, is very different in Elle's memory than he was in the prologue. In the prologue, his own memories, perhaps, he was genuinely charismatic, nurturing to a certain extent. If nothing else, he had a rapport with Ten. But in Elle's memories, I think we see the truth, or something closer to it. Brenner is a tyrant and an abuser. The behavior that he inspires in the children is chilling. They are behaving like tiny soldiers, little robots, not children, and it's nauseating to see. Elsewhere, out in the desert, the California boys put together that they're calling a computer, and they realize that they need a hacker. Unfortunately, they know only one. That one being Dustin's weird, singing Mormon girlfriend. And oh boy, am I not looking forward to that. Back at the Creel house, Steve finds a black widow in a jar beneath the floor, and as far as I'm concerned, this is yet another hint that Vecna is Henry. More worrying, though, is that a living Black Widow starts crawling around on Steve. It looks like potential foreshadowing to me, and I repeat, I am very afraid for my boy. And then, at Project Nina, Elle goes into cardiac arrest. Not that Brenner seems to care. At the Creel house once again, the Upside Down is forever fucking with the lights. They think they can follow Vecna's presence as he moves through the mansion based off how the lights are acting, and it works. They follow the lights up into the attic, where Vecna is connecting to his weird tentacle network and going after Jason's friend, Patrick. Jason and Patrick follow Eddie's attempted escape into the water, and they're clearly going to assault him if they reach him. But they don't. Patrick floats up into the air, his bones begin to snap, and then his crumpled corpse falls into the water. I dread to think what Jason is going to believe about Eddie now. And we end in Project Nina. Elle is defibrillated to get her heart working properly again, but she rejects the oxygen she's offered in favor of bashing Brenner in the head with a paddle. She makes a valiant run for it, but doesn't get far. The disgusting guards from earlier taunt her some more before trying to attack, and she wrecks them, bless her. But it's this small victory that truly traps her. 
The elevator opens, and no literal barrier stands between her and freedom, but Elle has been given a taste of what she so desperately wants, and of course, it's irresistible. Her powers are her sense of self, her confidence, her armor, and to get them back, she's willing to do anything, even to give Papa what he wants. She'll suffer the taunting, she'll let him pretend she's his daughter, she'll even hold his hand. And I think I'm gonna cry. So, like I said, this was a good episode. It's just that it was a very hard episode. It was a very hard one to watch. Um, the L stuff is definite plot development, but it hurts. It hurts to see. It hurts to sit through. Um, everything that's happening in Hawkins is very interesting. I like where all of this is going. It's the Russia stuff that's just driving me insane. Um, I don't care about Hopper's part of the Russia plotline. I don't care about Joyce's part of the Russia plotline. I love that Murray is being used, but I wish he was being used to do just about anything else. Honestly, I, I wish that whole plotline was just cut from the show, primarily because I thought Hopper was dead. I, I, I was pleased with Hopper being dead. Um, I understand that he's a fan favorite character. Not this fan, sorry. He was on the far side of tolerable in the first two seasons. He was never like a good guy, definitely not a great guy, but season three pushed him into straight up like abusive dad territory. And I just, it genuinely, it turned him into the most unapologetically, toxically, misogynistically masculine person. And just, it was so repulsive that I was so relieved when he died. And now Joyce's entire plotline this season, or so it seems so far, is about getting him back in the most boring, annoying, frankly agonizing way possible. It's just a, such a vast disappointment. A Joyce-Murray team-up is everything I wanted, and that they're doing, that they're choosing to include it in the show under these circumstances is just like, it feels like an insult. So, I don't know. I understand that everybody else, everyone on the face of the earth except for me, loves Hopper. I hate him. I hate him. I wish he wasn't in the show. I wish he'd stayed dead. And I feel like everything to do with him this season is an enormous waste of my time. That can change, of course. We have what four episodes left or something like that. Um, I don't know. I'm just disappointed by everything that's happening around Hopper. Hopefully, however, they tie his plotline in with the rest of everything that's going on, because obviously they will. Hopefully the way that they do that is going to be narratively satisfying. I don't know if it could possibly be so narratively satisfying as to justify how agonizing it's been to watch, but hopefully I don't come away from whatever the end goal is here still feeling like it was an enormous waste of my time. Because right now, here in the thick of things, that's how I feel. But beyond that, I look forward to finding out how close I am to the truth on this Vecna theory that I've got going. I feel like I'm I'm like I'm a good 90% convinced that 
I've got it right in some aspect. I, you know what, I might say I'm 100% convinced that it's either Henry or the orderly, and some degree of convinced that it somehow both. I don't, I don't know how it could be possible, but I am more confused by how it could possibly be anything else. Because that seems to be the only way that all of these elements really thread together to make a larger whole. And this is episode five out of a released seven, a total nine. So we are closing in on the part of the plot where things need to begin to weave together. The different plot threads need to start weaving together into a coherent whole. And if that's not the reason that we were shown the flash, the very suspicious flashback of Henry, then I don't know what the point of those scenes was. And I can't come up with an alternate beyond he's Vecna. I suppose it could be foreshadowing in some way that maybe Vecna can possess people. I suppose it could be a hint going forward that maybe he doesn't just... I don't know, connect to people to kill them. Perhaps he connects to people and has some way of controlling them. And maybe someone in the future, maybe Will, is going to get possessed. And so maybe this is a hint that Vecna can do that. Maybe it's not that Henry and or the Orderly were Vecna. Maybe it's that one or both of them was possessed by Vecna. And so will someone else probably in our main cast before the end of the season or maybe next season i guess i guess if i was to come up with an alternate theory that would be it but i feel like we need to stay more in the realm of simplicity so i am putting all my chips down on henry is vecna i think that's what i'm doing and then if that gets thrown out, then I will move towards the orderly is Vecna. No, I, I see. I don't. I don't see any way for the Henry thing to be relevant unless Henry is Vecna in some capacity. I'm calling it. I'm calling it. I'm calling it. Henry somehow. They said. They said that he died off screen. Bullshit. Somehow he lived. He grew up to become this orderly. I don't ask me how. I don't know. But somehow they're the same person and they're both Vecna. That's it. That that's I'm calling it. That's it. I don't know I don't I don't know how. <laughs> but I'm calling it. That's the truth. Over the next four episodes. Watch. Watch and see. It those scenes with Henry do not make sense otherwise. The carefully positioned face of the little boy in both of those shots in the flashback do not make sense otherwise. They simply don't. So, with all of that said, now that you've heard me lose my mind, that was my coverage of Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 5. I am, of course, going to be back very soon with my coverage of Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 6. I'm looking forward to it. I hope it's going to be very fun. As I finish up this recording, I'm going to be sitting down and watching it, so here's hoping it's good. Um, if you are enjoying this podcast, you may be interested in leaving me a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice. 
of talking about the show on social media, recommending it to a friend, something along those lines. If you are interested in my reaction videos, including to this season of Stranger Things, along with many other properties, those are available to $5 and up patrons over on my Patreon. $1 patrons get access to polls determining what it is that I cover. And beyond that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you join me again next week. I hope you provide me some insight onto what it is that you want me to cover. I'm going to try to cover popular things, plus a mix of things that I actually am interested in or even nostalgic for. But beyond that, as always, thank you so much for listening. The friend floats up into the air, his bones begin to snap, and then his crumbled corpse... Crumbled? Crumbled or crumpled? Crumpled, not crumbled.